0: Hello, and welcome once again to Making Digital, the show where we talk about design, product, engineering, and how they intersect to make digital goodness. I'm joined once again by my lovely, lovely co-host, Jeremy Carney. Say hi, Jeremy. Hi, Bob. Uh, Hi, Jeremy. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to spend like 10 more minutes editing that because you cannot get that segment right
1: (laughs) it's all right I I think you had to spend a lot more time than that editing the ums out last time from my from my track
0: yeah that took I don't know 45 hours or so not bad
1: I've got an electric shock system set up now to shock me every time I say it so hopefully it's not too distracting
0: okay but I think you should put me in charge of that electric shock
1: I don't trust you Not at all.
0: And that is the basis of our podcast.
1: 100%. All
0: right. Well, thank you, everyone. By everyone, I mean Tobin for joining us once again on this wonderful journey. We are excited to bring you our second episode in the last month. We are blowing our 18-month hiatus out of the water. Absolutely gone. We can forget about that period of our history. If you are just now joining us, you should realize that this is part two of a series. So you should maybe go back and listen to part one if you have not, or if you don't want to. Here's a quick recap. Last episode, we talked about how designers are perceived. Jeremy, what was our perception there? I mean, it wasn't great.
1: We went through a survey where we got some feedback from people. And I'm going to use a few words real quick. were rushed, opinionated, freewheeling, fussy, expensive,
0: and, and uneducated.
1: uneducated. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was the harsh one. Ugh. Yep. So then we kind of picked that apart and thought, why is it that designers are perceived that way? And what can we do to change it? Well, well I think
1: our answer was the idea of effectiveness versus empathy empathy for your team, empathy for your partners, which led us to this idea and this solution that is human-centered teams.
0: That's right. And so today, what we are going to do is dissect what a human-centered team is and hopefully have you walk away with some very real, very tangible tactics and strategies you can use on your own team to help make them more human-centered. So to kick us off today, Jeremy has a great example that I that I thought he should share around around how he helped make a certain team more human centered. Why don't you kick us off, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, sure. I've had the opportunity to lead a few amazing teams, and this is probably a combination of a couple of those teams and those experiences. But I, I want to talk about walking into a team and realizing that you don't, or that the team doesn't have relationships with their partners, and sometimes even relationships with each other's. I walked into this one individual team, this one particular team, and realized that the, a lot of the design that they had been doing was in silos, away from their partners. Uh, they would get the um, requirements or they would get the information, and then they would go off for a few months and they'd work on something, and then they'd come back and they'd present it, and those presentations didn't always go great. The feedback wasn't always great. They realized that the, the the partners didn't always align with what they were thinking, and they were frustrated. They were frustrated that they didn't like their ideas, they thought that they were on the right track, they thought they had all the information, but the partners weren't included in that process. And mm-hmm. so one of the first things that I did was I took the team and we sat down and we said, all right, let's go build relationships with the partners. Not me as a leader going out and owning those relationships with the partners, but the team going out and owning their relationships with the partners, unleashing the team to go out and work directly with the partners and bring them in on workshops, bring them in on critiques and reviews, bring them in every step of the way so that the partner's didn't get to the end, and they were and were surprised that they knew what was coming. There wasn't some grand presentation at the end, but there also wasn't this idea of "hold on a second, that's not what I wanted." Mm. And that one action led to such amazing relationships with our partners, and it led to better products.
0: Mm, yeah, and I, I know one of the things you told me about when you were going through this process. it it was amazing for your team to realize that their partners are not always thinking about design.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So our partners, multiple companies I've been at, sometimes as designers we can sit and we can go, why aren't they responding quickly? Why don't they know this? Uh, Why why aren't we getting the information that we need? Until we started to build that layer of empathy with them and realize how much work that they were doing, it had nothing to do with design uh, there were compliance reviews there were content reviews the, the you know meetings that they needed to go to their own things of that our work was important to them but it was a fragment of the rest of the work that they needed to do And so just understanding that one thing and that we weren't the center of the universe helped change the way we dealt with them
0: you applied human-centered design to working with your partners and you thought, wow, I really understand now what they have to go through. What could I, as a designer, do to help them? And what could our team do to empower the things that they need to get done?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There were moments in those relationships where they were slammed. We all run up against those moments where we have huge asks and we don't know what to do. And... There were things that we could do to help them. We could help to find problems, right? Business cases. There were things that we could do by crossing the aisle and finding out how to help. We could say, like, let us take this off your plate. Hmm. And by doing that, one, it, it built, it's a killer relationship builder. Uh, two, we learn a little bit more about their space. And three, it actually gets them to offer the same because we're going to be in that position at, that, at some point in time. And so... It just it was such a solid relationship builder to do to to just ask that question. How can we help you?
0: Those partners immediately start to see the value that design can bring to the table by thinking through their problems through a different lens, right? Which is what the human-centered design spectrum is all about.
1: Well, and it's not something that as designers that we alone own, it's something that we want our partners and our uh, all across the board to use. is something we want to do with them. So if we treat human-centered design as just something that design teams own, it, it doesn't work the way that it should. But if you treat that and your relationships as this ecosystem, mm. it becomes this incredible tool where everyone is responsible for the human-centered design, not just the design teams. And so... Uh, one thing that I would tell my teams all the time is that we are an ecosystem with our partners. You know, Forget about the org that we report to. Don't forget about them, but that that's not our primary focus. Our primary focus is everyone else that's involved in us shipping a product to market. And so instead of being a stop along the way where you think, okay, you have business and you have design, and then you hand it off to developers, you think of it as an ecosystem where business to design and development have equal stake in the delivery of these products, and they have equal stake in the human-centered design process.
0: Design is a part of the ecosystem. It's not a step or a stop along the way. That's awesome. I love that. So we've talked a little bit about what human-centered teams look like with partners outside of design. But now I want us to turn our attention to what does a human-centered design team, like the internal team of you know, designers and strategists and uh, project managers. What does that look like?
1: I want to talk a little bit about this framework that I developed while I was in my last role. Walking in and seeing a need for some very specific things that seem to repeat themselves, no matter what team I was on, no matter what team that I led. Teams need purpose, identity, they need to be empowered, and they need support. And those four things, one, they formed an amazing acronym. I love acronyms and I love PI. And so the acronym for this spells PIES, I'm calling it the PIES Framework, something that we want to make, do another episode on and make available to you um, down the road. But those four things, purpose, identity, empower, support, are critical to helping a team thrive. Without one of those it can throw things off balance. And I've seen it time and time again. So we would actually run a workshop at the beginning of, of kicking a team off where we would identify these things, not me saying, here's your purpose, here's your identity. I'm going to empower you, I'm going to support you. But we talked about this as a team. A video that I like to show in this workshop is a video by David Marquette, who was a former submarine commander. You can look up David Marquette's submarine on YouTube and you'll see this amazing video. And it talks a lot about these things, a lot about empowering, a lot about moving decision making closer to the people who have the information. And I, I love that video and and how it plays into that framework. But more to come on that framework. I wanted to quickly talk about it today.
0: Definitely listen in for when we break down the Pi's framework. I think that's going to be a great episode. One of the things that I did early on in my in my leadership journey. When I took over a new team is I sat down with the team and I said, look, we're all going to do a little bit of self-reflection here. I want each team member to spend 15, 30 minutes, think about yourself, think about a couple of things. How do you like to be communicated with? What what resonates with you? Is it one-on-one conversations? Is it Slack messages that maybe you can respond to when you're ready? What tone motivates you? What sort of things, what's your communication style? What's your favorite way to work? Do you enjoy sitting quietly? Do you enjoy listening to music? Do you enjoy, like for me, I like to work solidly for 30 minutes to an hour and then I need to take a walk. I take a 15 minute walk and i listen to music and i solve things in my head while i walk or i take care of correspondence uh, on my phone that's when i do my emails and my slack but that that little bit of rhythm to my to my life just makes makes the rest of the day flow so much easier so i wanted my team to document that and think about them for themselves and then each team member came back and played that back to the rest of the team it sounds a little cheesy and a little corny, but it was amazing to watch light bulbs shine in my team when they heard another team member talk about what motivates them and what doesn't motivate them. And they think, oh, maybe that's why they responded this way when I spoke to them like that. I didn't realize that they worked this way. And then I every so often like every year every year and a half or when we had new teammates join we would kind of revisit those just quickly I'm not talking about doing a one day workshop i'm talking about a you know an hour here an hour there of work to help us understand each other and how we work together i know one popular way that a lot of teams think about this is with a some sort of uh, personality profile.
1: I've been at companies where Strength Finder was big. I've heard people talk a lot about Enneagrams and Meyer Briggs, astrological signs, you know, just just all <laughs> of these various things that help you kind of outline what your personality is.
0: There's a lot of power to that, but I think where some teams get distracted, is they look at the outcome of the, that survey or of that test as the point of the exercise. But to me, that's not the point. The point of the exercise is the meaningful conversation you have around the outcome. If you're having that meaningful conversation with your team and you're starting to understand each other and you, you start to develop that empathy, that's the real power of those types of tests.
1: It's not about the specifics of what it says. It's about using that to help your peers learn more about you. Can I tell a semi-embarrassing story about this?
0: No, but go ahead. I know you're going to anyway.
1: In my finder, I was just trying to look up my five, but I couldn't get them up quick enough. Uh, they, in in finder, they call out your top five. The very first time I read them, I saw Realtor. Now,
0: <laughs>
1: I only saw it for about a second But in my brain, I quickly thought, I know nothing about realty. This doesn't make any sense to me. It was actually relator. Anyways, I had to share that. I share that all the time. It's an embarrassing story, but don't come to me for realty. Do come to me for relation.
0: And as I like to say, borrowing it from one of my favorite fantasy novel series, journey before destination. The journey is the part that matters. The destination is great. You want to get there, but you don't learn from the destination. You learn from the journey.
1: If anyone learned anything about the TV show Lost, it's journey before destination. (laughs)
0: 100%. 100%. Long live Jacob. All right. So we have talked about kind of that empathy building within a team, but there's another aspect to the team that I think is really important that is specific to design. And I'm talking about critique. Critique is a building block, not only for a good end product, but for a healthy design team.
1: A hundred percent. I feel like I say a hundred percent a lot. I'm going to hear that one in the next recording. This is something that's come up on almost every team that I've been a part of, that I've led. Is how do we critique? It's not an easy thing to nail mm-hmm. down. No. It's something that is there's there's the desire for it, but it gets thrown off often by a lot by a few different factors. And 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 I think it's it's something worth covering.
0: So I like to think of critique as the ultimate safe space for designers. And I know If any of my former teammates are listening to this, they might be thinking, what are you talking about? Critiques is where I get attacked. Critique is the the place where I feel the least safe. And to that, I would say, it's very important when you enter critique that you are challenging the work and challenging the work hard, but you are not challenging each other. That's a mental shift both for the person who's giving the critique and for the person who's receiving the critique. The work is the work. You are you. You have to separate yourself from the work.
1: That's one of the biggest hangups in it is taking it personally or giving critique personally and Mm -hmm. not talking about the work. And so I love where you're going with that. I remember watching a, Dis- or a Disney Pixar, whatever the the name of the the movie company is now, um, movie a, a few years ago, and seeing a making of video that was one of the extra features on the disc. That's right, I said disc. It was it was back in the DVD days.
0: Wait, 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 wait. DVD days are over.
1: Wait, let's talk about that offline. <laughs> okay. So this this making of video was about. How, Pixar's formula for success, their movies have been hits, hit after hit after hit, especially in the early days, you know, they, they were just an unstoppable force. And one of the things that they attributed it to was their critique, was the idea that you have to walk into a room with your work and be willing to give honest feedback and willing to receive honest feedback and to take that in and make it better because with them they had millions of dollars on the line with these films and if someone didn't look at a scene and go that's not funny the timing isn't right that's not quite there the audience wasn't going to laugh and it wasn't something you could have an actor retake easily there was so much time and energy involved in it but they had to be honest with each other in order to come out with this better end product but it it wasn't, well, I wasn't there uh, as the video stated. It wasn't about the people, it was about the work and about mm. making a better end product.
0: Mm, yes, one of the, my, the favorite things that our, our number one fan Tobin talks about, w- when he would walk into a critique, he would always say, look, this is all of our work. All the work is our collective work. When Jeremy delivers a crappy UI every sprint, if I let that UI roll out without challenging that work, that is not his fault, that is my fault, that is our fault as a team. All the work that goes out from our team is our work.
1: It is, and I wanna outline a pet peeve in this space that I've seen other leaders do. And that's when you're presenting to stakeholders something that you've worked on together, something that they're really excited about, and one of your designers pre- presents it, and the stakeholder has negative feedback about it, and the leader goes, you know what, Jared, you've got to take that work back. That's, that's bad. Jared, Jared didn't mean to do it. He makes excuses. The leader doesn't go, you know what, our team is going to take that back on, and we're going to work on it. He puts it on the individual and says, Jared will take that back and work on it. Or I'm sorry, Jared wasn't in the right headspace that day, or, or some excuse. He doesn't own it as a team or as a leader. He makes the individual own it. And that's an easy way to kill critique and an easy way to kill that safe space.
0: It, it, it undermines all of the work that you as a leader have tried to do to build up your team when you don't own the work of your team collectively there is a layer of vulnerability that comes with all this right when you when you have worked hard on a design on a ui on an idea and that idea is being questioned picked apart and maybe they don't understand the context of why you made a decision and maybe you're having a hard time verbalizing what that context is it's very easy to just back away and to to go into your own little shell and to, to stop being vulnerable to your team. But I would challenge that and say, the way that you gain trust is by giving trust. You must be vulnerable with others for them to be vulnerable with you. And if you feel like you cannot be vulnerable with the design team around you, that, my friend, is the number one priority for your team to address that vulnerability has to be there.
1: You sound an awful lot like a marriage counselor.
0: Well, I do that on the side, but mostly just for you and your (laughs) wife.
1: No, I I, I say that for a reason. And that's that I I joke with people about if I ever ever write a book, it's going to be the things I learned about business from my marriage counselor. Not afraid to say I've gone to marriage counseling, I've gone to individual counseling. I think it's an amazing, amazing thing. But a lot of the things that we've talked about today are the same things that counselors cover when they're talking about communication. And that's, one, communicate often. The Mm -hmm. longer you go without speaking about a problem, the bigger that problem becomes. And then that leads to escalation. Mm -hmm. And that's such a powerful lesson, not only for relationships, but also for the workplace.
0: That brings to mind, I remember going to to counseling, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, uh, and... This, this image has stayed with me. The counselor described anytime that you're hurt by someone that you respect or someone that's meaningful to you, it's like receiving an arrow to the chest. And when you, when you get shot in the chest with an arrow and it's not fatal, you have a couple of options. You can keep trying to go forward and act like you don't have this, you know, foot long piece of wood sticking out of your chest. Or you can yank it out And address the problem. When you get hit, you're in a state of shock sometimes. You may not know how to just go about yanking the arrow out. But if you don't do it, the next time you get hit with an arrow, it's much more likely to be fatal. And then the next time, and then the next time, and before you know it, there is no going back. There's no repairing that relationship with the person who has hit you, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, maybe they don't even realize they're hitting you with an arrow. So you have to address it. You have to yank the arrow out and the same applies to, to a design team. You can't let those things fester.
1: That is such a strong, beautiful, and very graphic image. <laughs>
0: To think <laughs> Maybe about that's, that's um, why it stuck with me for twenty years.
1: But but since you, I mean, you, you, we talked about this last week when we were planning this episode, and it stuck with me. You know, I, I hear people all the time talking about problems with teams, and when you when I hear it now, I see this arrow to the chest, and, and I'm like, you've got to you've, you've got to address it. You can't take another hit. You can't take two more hits. Um, it's such a good image, and I hope it's one that, that sticks with y'all.
0: So we've talked a lot about empathy. We've talked about getting to know your team, and getting to know your partners. But there's another side to this conversation, accountability, which is something that's very important, I know, to you and I, Jeremy, as design leaders, how do we take this empathy that we have for teams and for partners and also hold them accountable to outcomes, which is a different paradigm than when you're dealing with with users, right? Because someone who's using your product cannot by definition use it wrong. If they're using it wrong, that's not their fault, that's your fault. But that's where this analogy starts to break down is because someone on your team, you can have all the empathy in the world for them, but they could still be taking advantage of that empathy and where do you start to draw the line between empathy and accountability? I think a strong critique is a part of that. That's why it's important that you separate the person from the work and that you you challenge the work very hard because that isn't a tangible outcome that you can hold accountable. I think a defined process,
1: those who know me well know that I love process. I love to make sense of chaos, mostly and selfishly for me, but also for the teams around me. I, I wanna see order, I wanna see efficiency. And so having that process is important. But, but you had a good example about that, Jordan.
0: So I agree. I think process is important and process that the entire team has had input into and agreed upon. When the entire team agrees upon it, then it's easy to hold them accountable to that. My point is that it doesn't matter what the process is. You need to be process agnostic. Find the process that works for your team. And it doesn't matter what it is, just once you have it established, stick to it and hold your team accountable to it. If you're a team member, hold your team members accountable to that process. And if the process isn't working, then as a team, change the process. That process is what helps the accountability converse the accountability conversation goes so much smoother.
1: And I, I love that you put in that iterative piece of it at the end with it, if it doesn't work as a change as a as a team, change it. Because that's mm-hmm. so important. Because when we first create the process, they're they're imperfect. Uh you know, typically you treat process like any other product and you create a, a minimum, minimum viable process. One mm-hmm. more MVP to the list of MVPs. Um, <laughs> but you, you but but you want to be able to morph that To support all of the things that we talked about today. If your process is getting in the way of being a healthy team, then you need to change the process. Then you want to stick to that process.
0: Another tool tool that I've used as a leader is to do 360 reviews with my team members. So every six months or every year, whatever cadence I choose, I ask my designer who do you work? Who, who have you worked with closely in the last six months? They give me names. I also pick names of people that I know they interact with on a regular basis. And then I ask those, those people some very basic questions about that designer. What are they doing? Great. Where do you think they could improve? And then how could they push themselves? I take those answers about that person and I synthesize it so that, you know, there's no names involved. There's no, it's not personal but I look for those themes and then I turn around and, and I share it with that designer. It's much more powerful coming from their peers around them than it is solely coming from me. But I make sure they know how people are perceiving them and how they could be improving themselves. And that's definitely a form of, of accountability. And
1: I, I, I'd go a step further with that. And and this will get into our next point as well. And the accountability isn't just us holding our teams accountable. It's our team's holding us accountable. So that mm. same 360 feedback that you you talked about doing with your teams, I, I make sure, you know, my leadership has done it for me in the past. If not, I, I want that. I want someone to help me um, go and get that so that I know from my team and from people that I work with, how am I perceived? Another thing that I look at for that holding us as leaders responsible is a team health check. Uh, a point in time where, as a team, without me in the room, without the leader in the room, they can sit down and give honest and like direct feedback, anonymous feedback, as long as we want to keep it that way. I love the Spotify model for this. So if you want to Google it and go see what the Spotify model is, Google Spotify squad health check model. It's a really great model. The way I would recommend setting it up is have someone that's not on your team do the facilitation. As a leader, don't be in the room so that your team feels good. It's basically dot voting on very specific things like morale, am I a pawn or am I a player, uh, business partner relationships, uh, tech uh, engineering relationships, and you go category by category. And then they pull quotes from everyone who dot voted. And then as a leader, I would get a report of how the team felt. And we would do this quarterly. So that I would have a good barometer or baseline for how my team's doing. I highly recommend if you're a new leader, go in immediately and have one and do one of these with your team or, or a similar model so that you have a baseline from when you took the team on. And um, so you know, before you, like what was it like? Do one day one and then do one every quarter. And it it will really help you see how your team sees you. And it will help you stay accountable to making sure that they have everything that they need, that they feel safe, and that they can be the designers that we hired them and and want them to be.
0: Mm, I love that. And, And the piece I really love about it is holding leaders accountable to outcomes as well. It's really easy to hold a designer who's producing screens or producing ideas on a regular basis accountable, but holding a design leader accountable to the health of his team is a really powerful thought. Because we as design leaders, if we don't watch and monitor these things and our team problems start festering, if we don't address them, we lose all credibility. And that cripples our ability to to deliver experiences for the humans who use our products.
1: I've seen it so many times where a leader talks a lot about being human-centered. They talk a lot about uh, empathy, but then they don't treat their team that way. They break in one of these areas. They don't create a strong foundation or a safe place for their designers. And once they don't, Once they break from that, once that stops happening, you lose credibility, you lose respect. And in anything in life, you know that that's a hard thing to get back. Mm. It's a very hard thing to get back. I would highly recommend doing, making sure that your team feels safe before you lose that credibility.
0: So there you go, my friends. That is the essence of human-centered teams, both in how you address your business partners and in how you build internal design teams focused on human-centered values. Uh, Hopefully you gained a lot, and especially about the conversation around accountability. That is the end of this particular subject. However, we have some great episodes planned for you in the future. I think the next one that we're considering is is pretty strongly centered around, oh my God, I just forgot the name of it. What were we talking about? Um, imposter syndrome, that's what oh, it was. Oh yeah, yes. imposter uh, syndrome.
1: Maybe Maybe we should have some imposter syndrome about making a podcast if we can't remember the next episode. Yes, well
0: definitely. I, I I will be beating myself up for the next week about that. So you can you can believe I have it. But until that next time, we would love to hear your thoughts uh, and ideas about this podcast, uh, wherever you see it posted. And please leave a rating or review for us on your favorite podcasting device or service. Is that what they're called? Services? Podcast services? Anyway, the point is leave a rating or a review it really helps us out we are so excited to be bringing this content to Tobin and the few other folks who are listening until next time however i'm jared stevens and i'm jeremy carney and together we are making digital making digital you just right. exist to make now my life art The views and ideas expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent those of any previous, present or future employers or spouses or family. Peace out.